good to see each of you all here this evening. It's good to see some friends from across the mountain, from Mount Hermon as well. Good to have you all here tonight. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 14. I want to go back to uh, the main text that I've been using for these meetings. If you missed the, the first two, if tonight's your first night, been looking at Luke 14, verses 25 to 35. This passage talks about discipleship, but I'm using it in the context of missions. If we are going to be disciples of Jesus, I believe we will take his message to the people around us. Last night we talked about surrendering our lives. We looked at verses 25 through uh, 27. Um, this morning, I talked about seeking God's will for our life. Looked at verses 28 to 33. And this evening, my third S is serve. Surrender, seek, and then serve. And it's kind of two-part tonight. <clears throat> I'll try to get done. What time am I supposed to finish here, Linford? You, you know better than tell me that. <laughs> I'll try, to, I'll try not to keep you too long tonight. But it is kind of two-part tonight. At the end of Jesus' dialogue or, or his instruction here to his disciples, in verse 34, he says, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land or for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You might wonder... What does salt have to do with discipleship? What does salt, and I brought some in a bowl here this evening, what does, why does Jesus talk about salt when he's talking about what it means to be a disciple? He's talking about laying down your life in verses 26, 27. He's talking about counting the cost. And then he talks about salt. And I pondered that for a while. And I'd like to look at I think five ways that I think salt, um, how it can be descriptive of a true disciple of Jesus. And then that's the first part of the, of the message. And then I want to go into the second part and make a case why I think God expects us to go into all the world and teach and preach. Before I get into that, I was going to say this at the beginning and I forgot, I'm sorry. Um, I wanted to thank you all for your hospitality. Y'all have been great. I'm sorry, as I told the children, I'm sorry that my whole family's not here tonight. This afternoon, Kurt and Jerrica, our two youngest, got sick. They were probably sick before that, but they started running fever this afternoon and are not feeling well. So Crystal and some of the younger children are not here tonight. But been thank I want to thank you for your hospitality, for bringing food for us. You brought like at least twice as much as what we could eat, so unfortunately we have to give some of it back. But you've been great, and, and thank you for letting us come and, and be here this weekend. Thank you also for your support uh, that you've given us in the past for our work in New York as well. Without people like you, we wouldn't be able to, to be there and to do that, and we're, we're glad for that. We're thankful. We don't want to take it for granted. I do try to send thank you cards, okay, at least occasionally, but we are, we are grateful and want to say thank you. What is salt? What are some things that we can look at salt 
and compare it to our lives as disciples. The first thing I want to look about salt is it's distinctive. It's very different. Um, and I think of that when you use it as a seasoning or if you put it on food, the power in the salt is its distinctiveness from what you put it on. If you were to put this on, I, I like my food salty, generally. Um, I have meat or potatoes or whatever I have. I like putting salt on it. Salt, um, the power, one of the, the things that, that makes salt beneficial is it's very different than what you put it on. If it were the same, if, in other words, I have meat here and I'm putting more meat on top of it, that's not going to change the flavor at all. But salt is different. It's distinctive, and that gives it power. As a disciple of Jesus, I think some of our power, um, some of our effectiveness comes in the fact that we are different. When you walk down the street and people look at you and they listen to you, they hear you talk, they see what you value. If you're just like the world, you're not going to really have that much impact on the world. If, you, if your values are the same as the world, if you talk just like the world, and if you think just like the world, and you act just like the world, then you really have very little to offer. The true disciple of Jesus, I think, as we follow God's word, we will be different from the world because God's word sets a very different standard than the way the world tends to think and act. So the first thing about salt is it's, it's distinctive. The second thing about salt that we can liken it to a disciple is salt preserves. It keeps things from going bad and decaying. Um, if you get a cut, you can use it as a cleanser. It burns like everything, but you can use it to, to prevent infection. Salt preserves things, keeps things from going bad. Disciples of Jesus, I think we are also called to cleanse and, in a sense, to purify or to preserve the, the world around us as well. Your presence, your witness can help to preserve your community. If you go, and this is going back to the Old Testament, but when Abraham was talking to God about Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities, it came down to 10 people. God said if there were 10 righteous people in those cities, he would not destroy them. And he couldn't find 10, and the cities were destroyed. Are you being salt in your community? Are you helping to cleanse the filth around you? Are you, doing, are you doing all that you can to warn people of judgment? Are you using the friendships that you have with your neighbors, with your coworkers? Are you using those to point people to Jesus? The third thing about salt is it penetrates. If you put it on meat it penetrates and goes inside and can change it to some degree. I, growing up in Virginia here across the mountain, I love country ham, salt-cured ham. I like honey-glazed ham, but not near as much as salt-cured ham. or something about that I, I like. Um, and I think you probably do on this side of the mountain as well. You take, you take ham, you take meat, and you put salt on it, and the salt penetrates, and it goes in, and it, and it, it really it changes it to some degree, it changes it and it preserves it, keeps it from going bad. When we were in Grenada, they, we had salt ham there as well, but more commonly, they would take a five-gallon bucket, fill it with a real heavy salt brine, and then put their meat in it, 
and it would penetrate completely through it, it would never need refrigeration. You just set it out, you go out to the shops and you buy it, you buy your pound of, of salt meat, the salt would go in through it and penetrate. There's only one way it can do that, though, and that is it has to be in contact with whatever you put it on, like you put it on meat. If you, if you take your salt here and you take your meat over here, it's not going to have any effect on it, but you, you put it on top of your meat and then it goes inside it and it penetrates. We have our, our effectiveness in re reaching the world around us is directly related to how much we come in contact with them. If you keep yourself at a distance from people of other cultures or your neighbors or the people around, you're not going to be able to penetrate and change and help uh, to point them to Jesus. It's hard to penetrate the world if you keep yourself removed from contact with them. Traditionally, as I, when I say traditional, I'm saying at least in the last hundred years, as Anabaptists, we are rural people. And in some ways, I think that's a shame. I grew up, as I said, I think it was this morning or last night, I grew up in Madison. I never thought I would move to the city. I, that was one of the last places on my mind. But now that I'm there, there are a lot of benefits to living in the city. There's so many more people there. According to the World Health Organization, in 1900, about 2% of the world's population lived in, in a, an urban setting. In 1990, 90 years after that, and only about 15, 14 years ago, that number rose to 40%. Today, that number is over 50% in climbing. And um, I won't ask a trick question, but I'll just tell you that all of you plan to live in cities one, in a city one day, so you can start now and get used to it. I plan to live in the New Jerusalem. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be a lot different than New York. But what I'm saying is traditionally we tend to be rural people, and we value that. And there's a lot of good things that can go along with that. But it's harder, I have found it's harder to be intentional about going over to my neighbors and talking to them if I'm in the country than if I'm in the city. If I'm in the city, I have people, they live above me and below me and beside me, like right there, not 100 feet or 100 yards. Some of the places where we're staying up at Jim and Kendra's, I'm like, man, this is in the middle of nowhere. It's a great retreat, but you can show how much we've changed in two years. Going, We, we didn't really feel safe up there. It's like there's... <laughs> In the city, it's like there's people everywhere, and so there's a sense of safety there because there's people everywhere. If you're in trouble, you just shout, and there's people popping out of their doors and looking at what's going on. You shout up there. There's like no one up there to hear you but the bears. Um, traditionally, we're rural people, but it's hard to be in. It, you, it's harder for you, I think. It's harder for you to, to get out and be in contact with your neighbors when they live a quarter mile down the road or instead of living just across the sidewalk. But salt penetrates when it's in contact with something. And as a disciple of Jesus, we need to get in contact with the world. Then we can penetrate and make a difference there. Another thing about salt is it flavors food. You put it on food, it, it makes it taste better. I, I'm not real keen on potatoes, but you can tell like a plain boiled potato. But you take a boiled potato and you put some salt on it, and then it's okay to eat. Like it, it takes something that's kind of plain and it makes it good i think to some way in some ways as disciples of jesus 
we are called to flavor our world. We were singing at the train station a few months ago. I'm not sure when it was, but a couple months ago, we had a group there, and we were singing and handing out tracks in the train station, and a lady stopped by, and I was talking with her for a bit. We had a, a table there. We were handing out Bibles, too, and people come, and we get in conversation. I was talking with her a bit, and then she was listening to the group singing. All of a sudden, she just started crying. I'm like, oh, my goodness, what did I say? I said something wrong or something. I was like, did I say something wrong? What happened? And she was just like, no, she's, she was crying because she was listening to the group sing, and the songs were reminding her of when she used to go to church or something. But it was just our presence in the train station with people passing by, it made a difference in her life. It brightened her day, and it pointed her, through conversation as well, pointed her back to Jesus. Another thing that salt does, I want to point out yet, is when you, when you put salt on, say, ham when you're, you're curing, making salt-cured ham or country ham, you put it on it, it doesn't make a lot of noise. It just goes about its job and does its work. It doesn't, um, you don't really hear anything. I had a friend over in Madison, um, stopped in at his place of business, and he's like, hey, come back, I'm going to show you something. So I went around the back of his shop, and he had a little storage barn back there, and inside his storage barn, he had a shelf and all I saw was a big mound of salt. And he was making country ham. He had put his ham there, and he covered it with salt. And I don't remember how long he said it's going to take to work. But when I stepped into the shop or into his little shed, I didn't hear anything. Like, I mean, there was, the salt wasn't say, hey, I'm over here. I'm, like, I'm changing this to make it something really good, and you're going to enjoy this in about six months or whenever it's finished. As disciples of Jesus, I think we can be like the salt and we can go about our job, we can, we can live our life for Jesus, we can talk to people, tell them about Jesus, we can do our work without causing a lot of people like, hey, check out what I'm doing over here, or like, you know, you should really take notice of this and pat me on the back. Like sometimes the world gets the idea that if, you, if you're not noticed, what you're doing isn't valuable. Um, only the people out in the forefront, those are the ones that get all the, the credit on sports teams, it's that way. The people that score the points, those are the ones who get the, the, the glory and the big contracts. In Christianity or disciples of Jesus, the people that are praying behind the scenes, no, people might never find out. In this church, you might never find out who is praying, but those are the people who are really, get, do, they're going about quietly behind the scenes, they're doing their job, and those are the people that God hears and he sees. God sees the people that are out in the front as well. But my point is, salt just does its job, doesn't do it, doesn't make any, any uh, big announcement. It just does it as disciples of Jesus. I think we go about, we carry out the work that God has given us to do. And we don't have to make sure that we get recognized for the hours that we spent praying for something or for someone. I've had people that I... They have come and talked to me and said, hey, we've been praying for you. DNI, as some of you know, and probably some of you are on, um, they have their intercessors bulletin where they have people praying for the different DNI workers. And I have only met a, a few of them. People have come and say, hey, yeah, we're praying for you. And uh, they, they let me know. If they wouldn't have let me know I was praying for them, I wouldn't have known. And there's probably dozens more that are praying, but they are the ones who are supporting the workers that are in other countries, the ones that are going out 
do your work. Be willing as a disciple of Jesus to go about, do your work, whatever God has called you to do. And if no one else notices, God is the one who sees, and God will give you reward one day. That's a few points that I wanted to bring out as to why I think maybe Jesus threw salt in here at the end. It wasn't by an accident that he put salt in here about disciples. As I think of my, my title this evening, Serve, Serving God in Missions as a Disciple of Jesus, go to the Great Commission, Matthew 28. I want to go there. I want to look at some of these verses. could also go to Acts 1.8. I might go there as well. It's a similar, um, similar wording. My question for us this evening is, is serving God in missions, is that optional or is it imperative? Is it something that God says, um, you know, if you have time, I want you to consider this? Or is it a mandate that he's given us that he expects us to carry out? It's not intended to be a trick question, but I'd like to hear from you. Which do you think? Is serving God in missions, if you were here last night, then uh, you probably will know where I'm going with this. Is serving God in missions, is that optional? Or is is it an imperative? Is it a mandate that God expects us to do, every one of us? My, my question, along with, with the defining missions, I think I said last night, we're all on a mission. We are all, we're all on a mission. As disciples of Jesus, we all represent him. And I think you hit it, Wendell, that no matter where we are going, we are to make disciples. I'm going to look at the Great Commission here um, and talk about that. I know it was, it was read this morning, but I'm going to look at it again. Matthew 28, verse 18, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Defining missions as a believer of Jesus, we are on a mission. That's why we're here. Not, you don't have to go to New York or to Africa or to Bangladesh. You don't have to go there to be a missionary. But I want to look at what Jesus said. So in answer to my question, we are all on a mission. I think it is imperative. God expects this to happen. But I'm going to look at a little what he says here and then see how that applies to us today. There's two promises that Jesus gives in verse 18. The first one... Actually, the first one's in 18, the second one's in verse 20. The first one is, he has all the power. All authority or all power has been given him. He has everything, and we have access to that power through Jesus. As believers, as a disciple of Jesus, if you've surrendered your life to him, you've you've sought him, and now you're trying to follow him, you're trying to serve him, you have access to that power. The Buddhists, I feel sorry for them, because they're like, there is no God, there is no higher power, everything that you need is within you. You just have to to reach within you and get that power. 
I feel sorry for people like that because I know me well enough that there's not a whole lot in here when it comes to really getting power to do something. I don't care how much time they meditate or how much time they think they are trying to access that inner power. That power is not coming from themselves. It's coming from another source. And if it's not coming from God, there's only one other place that it's coming from. We have access to this power. Jesus says, all power has been given to me. And the second promise is at the end of his commission in verse 20. says, I am with you always. And that is a comfort too, to know that no matter where you go, no matter where God sends you, he never sends you out without being there. He goes with you, or he says, come along with me. I think this is a mandate that Jesus has given us. He says, go therefore and make disciples. I'm told by Greek scholars that the verb, the main verb in this is make disciples. The going is expected. And if you stop and think, we are very mobile. We are very mobile uh, people. We are always going. We might be going to a volleyball game, or we might be going to work, or we might be going to town, but we are always going somewhere. And as we are going, whether it's travel, like literally around the world, or if it's just going about your daily responsibilities, we are, I think, called to make disciples. And he uses the word, make disciples of all the nations, which you probably know is referring, the word is ethnos, which is referencing, it's not a nation as in the United States, Bangladesh, India. It's referring to groups of people. The, the term or the buzzword in missions is a people group. Do you know there's about 7,000 people groups? Groups of people around the world that are considered unreached with the gospel. About 2 billion people in the world haven't rejected Jesus. They just don't know who he is. Some of the children that you saw pictures of this morning, they don't know who Jesus is. They may have heard of him. If they're Muslim, they would have heard of Jesus as a prophet, but they don't know him as a savior. They don't know him as the son of God. If they're Buddhist, they probably never heard of Jesus. There was a, a young man was, was in Western China near Tibet. He was not in the Tibet proper, but he was near Tibet. He got to know a doctor in a, a village. He was in this village for a few weeks. He got to know a doctor in this village, and he asked this doctor, as a young lady, she's, he asked her, he's like, do you know who Jesus is? This is last year. Um, do you know who Jesus is? And she's like, I never heard of him. And this is an educated lady. This is a doctor, okay? Not someone that is a tribal person that is like uneducated, an educated person. And the second question he asked is like, are you, are you Buddhist? And she's like, I'm a Tibetan girl. I don't have any choice. I didn't choose where I was born. You didn't choose where you were born, but we have the word of God. And I think God expects us to take this to those people. There are people all around the world that they haven't had any chance at saying yes to Jesus. They never heard of him. This word that Jesus uses here in 19, go and make disciples of all the nations, refers to a people group, a group of people bound together by a common cultural identity. They have two main factors that would identify them. They have a common language and a common culture. In some ways, as Mennonites, we are a people group. We have common language and we have a common culture. Um, 
the old order Mennonites that you have in the in the area, they would be in some I don't know if, if they're counted in the different people groups, but in some ways they are a people group. They have a, they're a common language and a common culture. And for someone to for me to go to an old order person and not understand their their view of scripture and their background, it makes it very difficult for me to take the gospel to them because I don't understand them, even though we have some of the same heritage that's a different, it's a different culture. And sometimes I don't think we realize how much of a culture barrier there are within groups of people right around us. I see that you all have a Spanish church here. Um, Sunday is a Sunday morning. I don't know when you have it, but that's, that's crossing a cultural boundary, reaching a different group of people. And I think that's fantastic because there's, there are different people groups right here in Harrisonburg that it takes a deliberate effort to get to understand them, maybe learn their language or understand their culture to be able to take the gospel and present it in a way that makes sense. Um, I used some of the examples of some of our neighbors is it this morning, I can't remember, this morning or last night. If I'm going to take the gospel to the neighbors that live right above us, they're Bengali Muslims, their view of scripture is completely different than my view of scripture. He was in in our apartment and on our hall right behind the door we had a gospel for asia bulletin and he he sees it and he was like go go spell he was looking it said gospel um something about carrying the gospel to the world or something he saw the word gospel but he didn't even know how to pronounce it he was like go go spell what is that and i was i had the opportunity to tell him it's it's the good news of jesus it's we're to end the poster, and I can't remember exactly the wording on the poster, but it was telling him, we need to carry the good news of Jesus to the, the countries. Another neighbor of mine, he's from Turkey, he's a Muslim. He was down in our church, um, where we, in the basement where we meet for church, and we had another gospel phrase, a bulletin there, which we took down. I'll tell you why in a moment. It was on the, it showed the countries in the world, and it had the countries highlighted that were the most um, resistant to the gospel. And they were in red and like the different colors. And don't you know, Turkey is right in the middle of this map and it's in red and no other country around it is in red. And he comes down and he sees that and, and he's pretty devout Muslim, okay? My other friend from Bangladesh is, we've dialogued a lot. My uh, friend from Turkey, very devout Muslim. And he is like, uh, whoa, you put my country right in the middle. And then he's like, why is it in red? And I'm thinking, I did some real fast thinking here. And I was like, oh, that's, that's because we're to pray for it more. We're to pray for the Christians there. And he's like, there are Christians in Turkey? And granted, there's only about 1% or maybe half a percent of the population is Christian. But to carry, my point is to carry the gospel to people like that, that's a completely different culture. It's a different group of people. And even though we talk the same language, the gospel is not going to naturally spread from our church to him because it's a, it, there's a cultural barrier there. Someone has to understand the difference, learn their worldview, and deliberately go and take the gospel to them. There's about 7,000 people groups that are considered unreached with the gospel. Um, if I were to take the gospel across the street to my Muslim friends, they're from Pakistan, perhaps similar culture to uh, Bangladesh. The neighbor lady right beside me 
She's from, Chinese, from China. I was going to say she's from Chinese. She speaks Chinese. She doesn't speak English good enough that we can carry on a conversation. Every morning, and I think every evening, she goes out. I know every evening. I think every morning as well, I should have said. She goes out and she lights incense and she puts it in a little holder right outside her, her front door. The people that I told the children about, their house burned down. Their house burned down because the grandmother was lighting incense to worship and something happened and it got away and it burned their house. It didn't burn it to the ground, but it gutted the house. These are people right around us. I went with another friend. He's from a Muslim, from a different Muslim friend from Bangladesh. Um, his English wasn't that good and he wanted me to go with him down to the store to buy a mattress. And I'm like, sure, I'll be glad to go with you. So we went down to the store and we bought a mattress and then we had to go across the street to another like to their warehouse to pick it up and they didn't have it in stock. They had one but not the other one. So then he called me back that afternoon and he's like, well, actually, I just want to go back. I want to get my money back. I got the one, but I didn't get the other one. I want to get my money back. Would you go with me the next morning? So the next morning, we go back down to the store and we got there right after they opened. We stepped into the store and at the far end of the, it was a narrow little showroom. It's about maybe as deep as, as the auditorium here. Stepped in here and at the far end, there's a lady standing there with a, her back to us, and she's kind of bowed down like this. You could smell incense in the, in the store as soon as you stepped in in the showroom. And I said, good morning, um, so we wouldn't startle her. Her back was to us, and she didn't say anything. I'm sure she heard us, but she didn't say anything for a minute or so. And then when she was done, she was light. She had lit incense, and she was bowing down to this little idol. And then when she was done, then she turned around. She asked us what we were doing this is, in, like, this is in the United States. You would think that you were in, she was Chinese. You'd think you were in China or in another country. People are coming from different people groups. They're coming right to us. We don't even have to go around the world to carry the gospel to these people. But it takes a deliberate effort to do that. Just handing out tracts on the street or singing in the subway is good, and that's one of the things that we do, but that's not going to bridge that cultural boundary. It takes deliberate effort to get to know your, who your neighbors are learn their language in some cases, like my neighbor lady, I can't even carry on a conversation because I don't know her language. Understand her worldview and then be able to share the scriptures and present Jesus with her. That's not something that happens overnight. It's not something that you're going to get accomplished in one year or two years. You hear about Jason has been in China for 10 years, and I would guess, based on what Wilmer told us this morning, that in terms of the amount of work, he's probably just getting started. Am I correct? In terms of the amount of work that's there that he could do, he's like 10 years, he's, he's nowhere near finished. Am I correct? Missions, cross-cultural missions, is a life commitment. Will God send you to Asia? I don't know. He's not, as uh, you said, he's not going to send everyone there. We need people that support, but why is it that we use the default as I'm going to stay here unless God like knocks me on the head and then sends me somewhere? I think God expects us to carry this. Ask another question. What's the difference? Sorry, I got to stop soon. Um, what's the difference between the great commandment and the great commission? What is, what is the great commandment? We're to love God with all of our heart, everything we have, as paraphrased, but we're to love God with everything that we have. And the Great Commission is what? Go take the gospel out. There's a, there's a crucial difference between those two. I think 
the Great Commission is something that God expects us to finish. It is a task that is doable. It can be completed. The Great Commandment can never be completed. We will always be loving God with all of our heart, and we have got to keep doing that, and we understand that. But I think God expects us to look at the Great Commission and says, you know what, if we were to pool our resources, we could do this. It's a doable task. If you were to take those 7,000 unreached people groups, and I did not do the math here. This was given to me, so if it's wrong, don't blame me. Um, You could take those 7,000 people groups and take individual congregations like this around the world. How many congregations, I'm not talking denominations, how many congregations do you think we could put together for every one unreached people group? You understand my question? And that's putting you on the spot, and you have to think real fast and just take a wild guess. I'm going to tell you, this is doable. Anyone brave enough to guess? If you were to to take congregations, like this is one, Mount Hermon's one, Oak Grove is another, take congregations around the world, established congregations, and band them together, we are going to pool our our resources, our personnel, our time, and we're going to focus on one of these unreached people groups. There's approximately 7,000 that are not reached yet with the gospel. How many congregations do you think we could put together for every one people group? About 1,200. There are a lot. We have lots of resources. If you look at this, this is doable. But sometimes, and I do the same thing, so I'm not, I'm not preaching at you. Sometimes I look at the Great Commission, I'm like, two billion people that have never heard about Jesus, like, you, there's no way. If we keep our same priorities... And again, this is generally speaking, I'm not talking to individuals here, but generally, our, if we have the same priorities that we have and if we have the same goals that we, if we don't, if we don't have a change of lifestyle, it's not going to happen. But it can happen. I think God wants, he expects us to make that happen and expects us to finish it. I think the Great Commission is imperative. As you are going carry the gospel. I want to quickly yet um, answer another, hopefully answer another question. People have asked me, so what happens if we are asked to go somewhere and I just don't feel a calling for there? What is, I got to ask another question first. What is a calling? What is, what is a call? Something you feel or hear. If I call you on my phone, you hear it. I think we've all been called. Some people say, oh, I just don't have a calling. I I do believe that God impresses on us different people in terms of where he goes. But the question has been asked me, so I don't really have a burden for this place, but I was asked to go there. Should I go? Often our default is like, no, if you don't really feel a burden for that, maybe you shouldn't go. I think the question should be, why should I stay I can't tell you how it's going to work out for you, but I can tell you how it worked out for me. I'd like to give you a brief history, and then I'll try to wrap this up. Going back about 15, 16 years ago, 15 years ago, when we were asked to go to Grenada, I don't know that I really had felt a burden for that particular place. We thought perhaps we would go there one day. Crystal had taught school there for a year before we were married, um, And we had committed ourselves that we're going to serve God in missions wherever he sends us. 
But in terms of specifically, there was not specifically a burden for, for Grenada. But we were asked if we would go there, and there was no obstacle that said, no, you shouldn't go. So based on what we'd already told God, we're like, okay, yes, we will go. Every, we had checked out some of the other things, the, the measuring sticks that I'd given you this morning on like guidelines and knowing God's will. And those were all, yes, go. So we said, yes, we'll go. After we got there and got involved with people, that's when God really put a burden on our heart and a love for the people and just a, a burden for the churches there. Then comes the time that God says, I want you to leave. And that was very difficult. But you know, over time, over that year, from the time that God said to leave until the time that we actually left, we had to give our board a year notice um, before we left. Over that time, I don't know, about six, seven, eight months into it, like where we're down to about three, four, five months before we actually left, one day I was like, you know what? My burden for the church is gone. It was there before. My love for the people was still there. I still love the people. We plan to go back to visit them this fall in November, and I can hardly wait. My love for the people is still there, but my burden for the work and my burden for the church, God took that burden away because God was sending me somewhere else. We came back to Virginia. God gave me a job, um, and I found fulfillment in that job. Worked there for almost three years, and during that time, there was, I, I loved what I was doing. Oh, I had my days like we all do where like, do I really have to go to work today? But overall, I loved what I was doing. And then God says, I want you to go to New York. I'm like, New York, I don't have anything. I didn't lose anything up there. Um, I, like, that's not really where I'm supposed to go, is it? But after we said yes to God, all of a sudden, I, again, I, I don't know if it was like an instant thing, but one day I checked myself again. It's like, you know what? I don't really have a, my love for my job. That's gone. I'm thankful for it. I plan to go work for him tomorrow for a few hours. But in terms of like finding fulfillment there, he took that away. I love what we're doing in New York. God has given me that burden. There's something, and it wasn't the first time that we left the city and came back, but it was the first summer, I believe, or the, yeah, it would have been the first summer. We've been there almost two years. One time we were coming back into the city, and when we came over the, the horizon, I think it was on Interstate 78, you could see the, the skyline of the city in front of me. There's something that just... It went through and was like, that's my city. That I, I belong here. God gave me a, a love for the city and a burden for the city, a burden for the peoples that are there. So my, my answer to people who come to me and says, like, should we go? I don't really feel a burden for that. I don't know what God will do for you, but I know God in, in our life, God has, has given us a burden for where he's called us, and he's also taken that burden away when he's called us somewhere else. Does God always do that? I don't know, but he did that for us, and I'm thankful for that. Sometimes we tend to hold people up that go off into other countries and say, oh, like they're really some special saints, um, you know, like they're sacrificing so much. We tend to glamorize those people. And as I look at people like Hudson Taylor or Amy Carmichael or William Borden or David Livingstone, they have sacrificed a lot. But I'd like to give you a quote here in closing of something about David Livingstone said and I think this should really be our, our mentality as we approach missions and carrying the gospel to the people that God has put around us, wherever God is sending you. Don't view missions as some glamorous thing that you go out there to do. 
It's just answering the call of God. David Livingstone said this, People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice which is simply paid back as a small part of the great debt owing to our God which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own reward of healthful activity? The consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with such a thought, such a view, and such a word. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, they may cause us to pause and cause the spirit to waver and sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be hereafter revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not to talk when we remember the great sacrifice which he made when he left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. I think that should be our, our view of missions. It, it has its challenges living in the city. But for us, the rewards are far greater. I don't really want to come back to Madison. <laughs> Sorry, Dad. <laughs> yeah, it's fun to come back to Mom and Dad's and, and get out of the city for a few days. And maybe God will send us somewhere else someday. I don't know, and I'm not worried about that. I'm just saying, for now, I'm happy where I am. I don't view it as a sacrifice. I view it as a privilege. And I think if, that, if we can have that view of missions, if God chooses to send you to Africa or if he wants to send you to Thailand, view it as a privilege, not a duty that, oh my goodness, I've got to do, I've got to go give three years and then I can you know, like check that off. And that. No, view it as, it's a privilege. It really, really is. I can't think of anything I would rather do than what we're doing now. And I thank God for that. I don't know what God has been saying to you um, these few meetings. I want you to check your life, though. I want you to look at your life in these three areas. Am I, God, am I surrendered? Or am I surrendering? Not just to have I surrendered because it's something daily or often we need to check. Am I living a surrendered life to you? Am I seeking your will for me, God? And God, where do you want me to serve you? How do you want me to serve, serve you? Open my eyes to opportunities uh, that you place and give to me. I want you to say, God, I'm yours to use in missions however and wherever you want. As we leave here, let's be true disciples, the disciples that Jesus wants us to be. Surrender our lives completely to Christ Seek God and His will for us, and then let's serve God wherever He calls us. Renford, I'll turn it back to you.